None of us would stay with God if it were not for God preserving us, keeping us in His name. And so Jesus prays to His Father to keep us in Him. Why? So that the Father would be glorified. Jesus has said that the Father will lose none, that all who come to Him and who believe upon Jesus Christ will be with Him in glory, that the Father will lose none, and the Father will lose none because that glorifies the Father. It glorifies the Father. And then last time we were here, we looked at the third request of Jesus Christ to the Father on this night before He's going to pay for the sin of all who would ever believe, and that is that the Father would set us apart. Verses 17 to 23. You remember, verse 17 is really the driving force. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. We understand what sanctify means. Set them apart. We've called it Father, set us apart. He's praying for that. Set them apart means to be holy, to be sanctified. And we understand that we must be holy to stand in the presence of God. There is no one who is unholy who will stand in the presence of God. Psalm 1. The wicked will not stand with God. They cannot stand Before God, that doesn't mean simply in a physical sense, that means in any kind of justifiable sense. They are sinful, God must judge. So without holiness, no one will see God, the Bible says. And Jesus Christ, through His death and through His resurrection, has accomplished that on our behalf. So that when we who believe upon Him, we are right now positionally in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the Father, right now we are holy because of Christ. And that's a great comfort to our heart. It's a great truth that we can rest on. But that positional holiness, that holiness before God in Christ, is not what Jesus is praying for here. What Jesus is praying for here is not a positional holiness with the Father, but a practical holiness in our life. Practical holiness as a Christian in our life. A life that actually walks according to the faith that we have. In other words, it is living a sanctified life. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So living a sanctified life is living an obedience-directed life. That means... And the the means of of a sanctified or obedience-directed life or the way of a holy life is the Word of God. A way to be holy, a way to walk by faith in a practical sense is through the Word of God. Jesus says that. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth. You notice it's not a truth. It's not some truth. It's the truth. It's the body of truth. It is God's Word. And so we understand that we cannot and will not be sanctified through any other means. So we must be in the truth. We must learn the truth. And we must be doing and practicing the truth so that we will be living holy lives right now. 
as Christians. This is what Jesus is praying for. And so we learned last time that we are to be sanctified, and yet that sanctification has a goal. And that goal is not simply our own growth. It's not simply that we would be practically holy and we could sit around and look at ourselves and say, hey, look how holy I am. But actually, that sanctification has a unity that is developed with each other. That's why Jesus says what He says in the verses following, verse 20 through 23. I don't ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in Me through their word so that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. There is a unifying goal to sanctification. And of course, the end result is the same result that Jesus has been praying for the whole time. Glorify the Father. To the glory of the Father in all things. And so we said we can conclude at least in that sense that the goal of our sanctification is a gospel proclaiming unity a unity amongst each other because we're living holy lives so that the world might hear of Jesus Christ it is a gospel proclaiming unity that God might be seen in us and God might be glorified by us in other words our unity as believers is a great testimony of God's glory to a disunified and disunifying world. So unity is the goal of our sanctification. Unified people are a gospel-reflecting people. That's the implication that Jesus is making here in verse 21. So we need to have that principle in our minds as we begin our time here again tonight. We need to have that flow, that thought, that... That way in which Jesus is praying about Himself to the Father and about us. Especially this last one, because if there is disunity within the body, if there is disunity within the church, we can be rest assured that somewhere in the process, the truth of God has been set aside. Right? We are sanctified in the truth. If there's disunity, sanctification isn't happening, therefore the truth has been nullified somewhere. When the truth is known and when the truth is put into practice, unity prevails, sanctification is being exercised, and the world sees a picture of the glorious gospel, a gospel that reconciles those who will turn to God for mercy. So the gospel unites us with God and us with each other so that the world might know Christ. So that's the essence of what Jesus is praying for when he asked the Father to set us apart. Finish the work, guard our faith, set them apart. And then we come to this final request. This fourth request that Jesus makes to the Father. And as I gave you an outline some weeks ago, the final request is to bring them home. Bring them home. And we see it there in verse 24 through 26 Father I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am Now I want to ask you a question tonight Where is Jesus right now 
I don't think there is any confusion to what Jesus is asking here. If you can read commentators who somehow find the way to find confusion in the words of Jesus Christ here in verse 24, I don't really think there's any confusion here. We need not be confused at the grammar of this verse. I mean, you read the grammar here and Jesus is speaking in the present tense. He's speaking of the right now. Well, we're not there right now. We weren't there right then. And the disciples are there right now. But that doesn't mean in any way that He is asking for the disciples then or for us right now to be with Him there in the upper room where He's praying. Just because He's speaking in the present tense or in the Garden of Gethsemane after. In fact... If that is what Jesus is implying by His prayer here in these words, Father, I desire that they also whom You have given me be with me where I am, it doesn't make sense. The disciples are already there. They're with Him already. So why pray for that? And we already know that Jesus isn't just praying for the disciples who were there then, But He's also praying for us. We see that already because we heard that back in verse 20. I don't ask on their behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in Me through their work. So Jesus is praying for us and every believer who comes after them by the testimony of every believer who shares their testimony. So you can clearly see... Jesus, what Jesus is speaking of is something other than the immediate reality of where He's at. What Jesus is speaking of is that of returning to the glory that He had before the world began. We can clearly see that that in the first verse when He says why He wants us with Him. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory. I want them where I am so that they can see my glory. In other words, in the mind of Jesus Christ, His return to glory is so imminent, it is so a forever now that it's already as if He's there. He speaks in the present tense as if that's where He's at now. Not just... His own words, but also the testimony of the angels after He rose. That's where He's at. Acts Acts 1, verse 11, the angel said to the men, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen Him go. Where is Jesus now? I think Revelation chapter 5 gives us A great description of this. If you want to turn there, Revelation chapter 5. I just want to read this. And I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. 
And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to the earth. And he came and he took out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and did purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures and elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Where is Jesus now? All of that in in Revelation chapter 5 is a glimpse into the wonder and the glory of where Jesus is in heaven. And even with all of those images, even with all that stunning reality where everything that has ever been created is crying out, blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. With all of those images, it still does not convey everything of the full glory of heaven. I say that because far too often, far too often we think of heaven, we think of the lesser glory of heaven. You say, what do I mean? Far too often we think of the streets of gold and we think of the painlessness that will be in heaven. We think of no more tears and no more sickness. We think of the wonder and the blessing that it will be to have no curse of sin. And all of those things are wonderful aspects of heaven. All of those things are glorious truths. All of those things are a reality that we get to look forward to. But what makes heaven so heavenly is not those things. What makes heaven so heavenly is the fact that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are there together. And you and I get to be a part of it all. Now go back to John chapter 17. This is what Jesus is praying for. Jesus is praying that we be where He is. This is what makes heaven so real for us, folks. What makes heaven so real for us is being with Christ. Being with Jesus Christ. We will be with Jesus. That is the promise And the glory is what should fill our minds. It's what we should think about in all of life and life to come. Some months ago, we all mourned and rejoiced at the homegoing of our sweet brother Joe, Janet's husband. 
But Joe understood that truth. I remember Joe saying, don't worry about me. Don't be concerned for me. I'm going to see Jesus. I love that. Joe didn't say, listen, don't worry about me. I'm going to walk down the streets of gold. I'm going to run to see Peter and ask him why he did some stupid things in Galilee. I'm going to go find this guy. He didn't say any of that. Joe said, I'm going to go see Jesus. What a great comfort that is in our darkest times here. Jesus praying, my desire, Father, is that those whom you gave me will be with me where I am so that they can behold my glory. There is a better morning coming. There is a better morning coming. An unfathomable awakening that is beyond all description for us. We are going to glory. We are going to heaven. We are going to see Jesus. And we are going to see His full glory. And it will blow us away. It's a glorious thought to ponder. Glorious thought, the thought of heaven, the reality of what Jesus is praying for. It's part of the reason why I've entitled this series, Nothing Could Be Better. There's nothing better. Nothing is more helpful for our anxiety on the earth, our worry, our our trouble, our difficulty, the struggles we have, than to actually know that we will see Jesus. But we're not there yet. I was thinking about the glories of heaven and I'm thinking about this passage and I'm thinking as I'm preparing and I'm saying, but Lord, I'm not there yet. This has not been realized for us. It will be. It's true. It's going to happen, but we're still here. And although we know all of this is true, and although we we look at Revelation chapter 5 and we wonder at the the majesty of it all and all that would take in place, and we know it's all true, and because we know Jesus, we know in an experiential way, we know God the Father. Jesus ends this prayer. He ends it with an emphasis on what we are to reflect to each other and to the world right now. Jesus asked in verse 24 that we be with Him in order that we might see His glory, the glory which which God the Father seemingly in some mysterious way has given to Him because of the love relationship between the Father and the Son before the foundation of the world. In some sense, that reflects the glory of God in in a masterful kind of way. And here we find Jesus Christ in the final two verses asking for us to reflect the very thing that He wants us to reflect right now while we're here. Notice what He says in verse 25 and 26. O righteous Father, although the world has not known You, yet I have known You, And these have known that you did send me. And I have made your name known to them. And I will make it known. So that the love wherewith you love me may be in them. And I in them. It's almost as if Jesus is repeating in a different way what He has said to the disciples back in John chapter 13. Remember what He said in verse 34 and 35? Love one another 
even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is asking for the same thing here. That the love that you have, that we have, the love that you had with, for me before the foundation of the world, which reflects your glory in, in miraculous ways, is the same love that I want them to have while they're still here on this earth. Now think about it. Think about it with me. What happens when you remove love from the Christian equation? What happens? What happens if you remove love, Christian love, from joy? What do you have? Well, I'll tell you what you get. You get a bunch of excitement. You get a bunch of worldly pleasure, but no real satisfaction. You get a bunch of euphoria. You get a bunch of hyped up feelings that do nothing for you. There's no real joy at all. Why? Because there's no real joy in anything without a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our joy. We have joy in the Lord, the Bible says. He is our joy. I was thinking, what if, what if there was no love in holiness? What if there was no love in holiness? What do you have? Well, what you have is self-righteousness. If there's no love and holiness, then all you have is self-righteousness. You, all you have is legalistic Phariseeism. All you have is the outworking of rules to try to justify yourself. What you have is hypocrisy. There's no love and holiness. What if truth didn't have love? What do you have if there's no love and truth? All you have is harsh principles. Harsh principles that have no power to change anybody. No power to help anybody. What you don't have is Jesus Christ. What you don't have is Him because Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the personification of love. With love... If, if there's no love included in any of those kind of things, you don't have Jesus included. We shouldn't be surprised then that Jesus would end his prayer like this. We have faith, we have hope, and we have love, but the greatest of them is what? Love. Is it any wonder that the world is so confused on what love is? I mean, let's face it, the world is confused about what love is, right? They don't know God. They don't know God. As Jesus declares here in verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you. Implication is the world can't love. The world doesn't even understand what love is without Jesus Christ. The world doesn't know you. They may claim to know some hierarchy of higher power, but they don't know you. The world doesn't know you. You cannot know love without knowing God because God is love. 1 John 4, 
Verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Same author, different book. Jesus says in verse 26, I have made your name known to them and will make it known. Why? So that the love that you loved me with may be in them and I in them. So when Jesus Christ entered into the world, the sentimental and selfish expressions of the love that was in the world were seen to be what they were. Just that. Selfish and sentimental. If I serve you, then you serve me. That's the love of the world. Or if you can serve me in some kind of way that might satisfy me, that's wonderful. I'll describe that as love. But don't ask me to serve you. But when Jesus came, when Jesus entered into mankind's world, mankind saw firsthand the love of God on display. The love that is Christ has been seen by us. Through the love of God coming in the form of a man sent from God to die. And through that death, the loving God would draw to Himself an undeserving throng of people into a new family to which every true believer belongs. A family that was called to reflect the very love that the Father and Son have for one another. So as Christians, the love of Christ is to be seen in us. Not in sentimentality, not in a, in a compromise to the exclusion of truth. It isn't love to exclude the truth of God. God is love. So we can't compromise the truth for the sake of some so-called love. We can't be sentimental and assume that that is love. No, it, it, it's not a I'll serve you if you serve me kind of idea. It's a love that reflects the very nature of Christ. It's a love that finds its source in God Himself. This is what Jesus is praying for. He's thinking of love's greatest testimony. The dying of self for others. Just as He's about to do for all who... The Father has chosen a love that would take him to the cross, which would show the love of God in action. Love at the cross is just that. It is love in action. It is love demonstrated. It is personal. It is personal. I want them to know the love Wherewith you loved me. I want them to know that. I want them to live that. So how is that love seen in us? How is it seen in us? 
Well, we could go to a lot of places in Scripture to find this out. But I think one of the best ways that we see this is actually in Luke chapter 14. So turn over to Luke chapter 14 for a minute. This may not be the place that you might normally turn to describe how this looks in us. But I think it's a good place to go. It's all about discipleship. Discipleship, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said in John 13? They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. So how are they going to know we're disciples of Jesus Christ and how are we going to love one another? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? If love is the reflection of true disciples, then what does it mean to be a disciple? Luke 14, I think, gives us a glimpse into this reality and the personal cost, just like the personal cost for God to love us. There's a personal cost here to discipleship. Notice what he says in verse 26 and following. There was a great multitude, verse 25 says, going with him. A lot of people following Jesus physically. A lot of people saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple of his. And he turns to them and he says to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost and see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he's not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and wasn't able to finish. What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to counter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. I don't know about you, but the first time you ever read that, it doesn't sound like what you were signing up for, does it? Follow Jesus? You mean my relationship with my closest people? There has to be devotion to you that is higher than devotion to anything else? The devotion to you has to be supreme My life and my priority and my submission to you has to look as if, in comparison, I hate everything else. And if that's not the case, I can't be your disciple? That's right. You mean my life has to be in such a way oriented to you that everything about my life is as if I'm going to die for it? That I don't carry my own cross. The duration of my life and the duration of how I go about has to be such that my life is in such a way that I'm dying to self all the time. And if that's not the case, I can't be my can't be your disciple. That's right. You mean to tell me that the dedication I have to have to you 
and all the resources that I think I have and my own self and my own resources and all of those kinds of things, you mean to tell me that in comparison to you and my love for you and how I live my life in reference to you has to seem as if I've given up all of that? Jesus says, that's right. That's right. Jesus said that he loved. He loved. In John chapter 17. I've loved them. I love my own. He even said in previous chapters, I've loved them to the end. And he showed us that love by sacrificing himself completely devoted to the Father for his entire life from the day of his first breath to the day of his final breath with complete dedication, complete sacrifice. Everything he had, it didn't matter to him. It was all because he wanted to honor and glorify the Father. He had complete devotion, complete duration, complete dedication to the Father. Jesus showed us the love by his caring for us in every way, even when it hurt. Jesus is asking us for no less. We as Christians are not in this world to be served. We are in this world that we might serve. So that we, in our demonstration of love, the world might see the love of God in Christ through us. All to the glory of God the Father. All to the glory of God the Father. I desire that they be with me, that they might see my glory. And I've made you known to them by how I've lived before them and how I've sacrificed on their behalf and how I've always obeyed and done exactly what you've asked me to do so that they might know you. They've known you. They knew you sent me. And I want them to know the love that we have so that they would reflect that love with one another so that the world would know. So that the world would know who I am and who you are. Isn't this what the Apostle Peter exhorts? First Peter chapter 2, all of us. Maybe this is a good place for us to just have this rest upon our heart as we close. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Why, Peter? Why? They're treating us so poorly. They're, the, the trials we're under, as you have described them, are fiery trials. Life is hard on this earth. The world seems to be going in directions that seem so anti-Christ. Why? Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that even though they slander you as an evildoer, they may, on account of your good behavior, we might even say it like this, on account of your Christ-likeness. As they observe it, they might glorify God in the day of visitation. This is what Jesus is asking. This is what Jesus said. Father, finish the work. Glorify your name by glorifying me. Father, guard their faith. Preserve them in their faith that your name would be glorified. Father, set them apart. Sanctify them. Make them holy in practical ways so that your name would be glorified. And Father, in the end, bring them home. 
all so that you are glorified. It won't be long and Jesus will be betrayed into the hands of the wicked men who would kill him. All so that you and I could see his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for our time tonight. What a privilege it is to just have this opportunity to study together. It seems fast and it seems furious, Lord, in our time together. But it is appropriate for us to be thinking of these things as we walk out the doors of this church, as we interact with the world around us, and as we gather together as a body. May we think about our sacrifice serving one another, that you might be glorified. Not so that we would get pats on the back, not so that we would be seen as something is better than others or champion our cause, but simply so that you receive the glory and others know that you are the living and true God and that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all who would believe. So, Father, whatever that means and however that works out according to your purpose and plan, may we be satisfied in you. That we might know your love, that we might reflect your love, so that the world might know that there is a Savior that can save their soul. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.